Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you're new here, I just want to give you a big bear hug of a welcome and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. I promise we're going to take good care of it. Today's clean energy champion is a Hawaii native who is well-versed in reaching low to moderate income communities, creating innovative products, and integrating storage into the grid. Eric Saunders originally joined Electric Power, where he is currently vice president of sales, in 2016 to advise them on business strategy for residential energy storage and go-to-market. He brings more than a decade of renewables experience, and he integrates it very well from his deep background and experience, both family and directly, in real estate development. I think you will really enjoy his understanding of the incorporation of sales, operations, product management, and finance into a career where he has both been an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur. Prior to Electric, he founded not one, but three different companies in Hawaii and was the first to bring a specific kind of financing to the Hawaii market, which we'll talk about in this episode. And of course, Electric works on battery storage. So you're probably going to listen through if you're curious about how the battery storage markets are growing, what the Inflation Reduction Act offers as a benefit, and more. I hope that you're subscribed to the show, as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. Sometimes we in a third episode as well. <laughs> and you can always check out more than 500 additional clean energy founders, stories, and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, once again, today we're going to dig into the world of battery storage, its uses, uh, edge cases, creative future possibilities, and uh, one of the companies out in California that is pushing the boundaries on what is possible to talk about how he has gotten into such a fortunate position. We're going to meet with the vice president of sales for electric power, Eric Saunders. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, Nico. I'm very excited to be here. It's been a long time coming and uh, it's, uh, I'm excited to talk about the, the history of electric and uh, kind of my background. Eric, as uh, we alluded to, and the beautiful story you shared, uh, you are a Hawaii native. I would love to better understand what are the most common misconceptions that you have to correct uh, for mainlanders who just ask you the most ridiculous questions about Hawaii. You know, I, I think obviously it's a beautiful place. It's a tourist destination. People save up their whole life to to get out there. I would say, obviously, it is beautiful. We we appreciate nature, but it is a lot different working there or uh, living there and uh, working there versus the little vacation that gets packaged uh, when they go. What's what's interesting is they are trying to promote more of the the real life of of Hawaii and not the Disneyland version of, of Waikiki and things like that. You know, there, there's a lot of hardworking people. What's beautiful about it is just they truly appreciate life. There's this work-life balance. Um, you know, it, it's really the dream world when you're out there and able to in, assimilate into the, the culture. It is a, um, it is a great life uh, for the people there. You know, you said in a previous conversation that it has every natural resource yet imports everything. When you were growing up in Hawaii, was it apparent that everything felt like it was imported, including in many cases, the way that power was generated, like was that something growing up that you could sense? You know, growing up, you don't pay a ton of attention to it. But as as I got a little bit older, you know, you start to notice things. Um, one thing I always remember just about watching sports: we didn't get live NFL games 
And so we always got tape delayed. Just things like that. Television was was imported and was delayed. Our lead times for anything we wanted to buy when there's potential shipping outages, everyone's panicked because there's no way to truck these things in. So if there's going to be a port strike, you know, so those are the things that are part of the daily life. Those are the things. And when you look back, yeah, those were impactful. And then as I got older and more into the energy industry, it really comes to light of how bad this situation is with all the imports or reliance on coal and oil. And that's really what was the original seeds to me getting into this industry. Do you remember a time where uh, you really had the first spark of, of an idea that there was an alternative to the way energy was being generated, uh, that first glimpse into clean, reliable electricity from solar or some other resource? As, as I think I mentioned, obviously growing up in Hawaii, my interest in the environment and uh, sustainability has always just kind of been there, understanding how integrated humans are with, with nature. So I've always had that interest. And I remember my senior year of college at uh, University of Colorado, they had a, a pilot class, this is 2002, of talking about renewable energy and kind of sustainability as a potential future. And I was like, oh, very interesting. So I took that class and that was the first light of, well, I mean, technology is getting there. It's fantastic. And at the time, obviously still too expensive to be where it is today. Uh, but that was kind of the first light to, of interest on the renewable energy side uh, in particular, and always kept my eyes on it um, o- over time. Tell me how, how you decided to make a career of it, because you didn't start out in renewables, yet you had a, a long decorated history in both Hawaii and then bridging back over to the mainland, sort of connecting Hawaii solar energy. Yeah. So I was a finance major coming out of college, 2002. Didn't really know exactly where I was going to go. It was kind of, do I go wear suits in the summer in New York for, and do a wall street life or come back home? You know, my, my, my dad's in real estate. So I've, I've had a lot of experience in real estate. Uh, So I came back and did some mortgage lending with a a friend of mine um, and just plan was do that for a couple of years, go get an MBA and then start a career. You know, that little stop in mortgages ended up lasting almost 10 years. Uh, but it's really just financing, understanding how lending worked, and then also um, investors. So we started getting into some developments and talking to investors. At the time, I was going around uh, talking to potential real estate investors about this big commercial project we were going to do in Maui. And I put this whole financial performer together and talking to these investors. At the same time, my dad wasn't building homes at the time. He was like, here's why. Look at solar. Um, And this was 2009. I remember having a lunch with him and basically back of the envelope uh, numbers. He's like, here's what it costs. Here's, you know, the tax credits and here's the cash flow. And I realized this is just this is real estate at the end of the day. It's a very comparable thing, the way it's financed. And I went back to my 2002 class where I realized, oh, the economics are here now. The technology is there. The desire is there. Now the economics are there. And this is circa like almost a decade later, right? Yeah, exactly. And I was trying to figure out what was next. I knew I wasn't going to get my MBA. I was thinking about starting a company. And I was like, here it is. It's there. It's go time. And, you know, I was 30 at the time. And I realized here's the next 30 years. You know, it's happened in in telecom and, you know, we have the Internet. So there's been all these structural shifts and the utilities were kind of that last market. And here it was, it was right in front of me. And it's like, okay, yeah, it's starting in Hawaii because we have higher rates, but this is it. This is what my next 30 years are going to be and made the leap within a month of that, uh, that lunch and said, let's go, let's do this. It's interesting too, the, the realization for you, having been raised in the real estate and particularly development side of real estate with the background, I had a mentor when I was at Conergy who he said, Solar, in particular utility scale, like the project development side of solar, not like the, not necessarily the residential scale side. It's real estate development without the occupancy risk. Yeah. The, the only difference I saw at the time was this is the, uh, overall a depreciating asset versus a appreciating asset uh, just because you'll have replacement costs. 
But, you know, once you have that site lease, you can replace panels down the road and all that. But that's the other side of it, right? So there's no occupancy risks and maintenance is a lot less. But yeah, it's very similar. Um, so having that background and skill set has definitely uh, been valuable. So for the next five years, you became a solar developer, one of the early solar developers in this sort of second wave of solar, both California and Hawaii experience around the same time. Tell me about your experience as a, a renewable energy project developer and then eventually creating this marketplace with Solar Hale. Yeah, so I was working for a, a, one of the big solar companies in Hawaii, big in 2009, 2010. And when I joined them, I just joined as a salesperson, just trying to get my feet wet. And at the time, there was a big feed-in tariff program, and the company was clearly focused on that. Obviously, 500 kW projects are much more profitable than, than a 5 kW. But again, me and a, a couple of other guys working there from Hawaii and we had this network internally of a lot of people that wanted solar, but weren't really getting the attention from uh, the solar developers in Hawaii. And it's really the churches, the schools, the community type of groups that had much smaller systems, 20 to 100 kilowatts. Harder to pull pull off. <laughs> Correct. And um, harder to finance and people. So we went out on this premise that why don't we aggregate these together and basically do group purchasing for them, but finance it and do a PPA. So, you know, we go to a church and they have multiple congregations throughout the state and you negotiate with them as a, as a group. So individually they would have purchasing power and, and provide a, a rate. So this was 2010 trying to 2011, trying to aggregate solar and then getting it financed. And that's where, you know, I realized how far off that market was, but we, we had so many relationships. We just decided we're going to get this done. We're going to find a way to, to fund these projects. So it, you know, the institutional investors weren't the route, but at the time people were having some capital gains, had some equity from real estate, and they were looking for alternative investments. And so we were lucky enough to find a few individuals that were really interested in this space, wanted to diversify their investments and invest in these, you know, we were, it was smaller as five to $10 million type of group of projects, right? It's a whole bunch of 20, 30 KW projects. It was obviously a battle. This wasn't easy. So you, you, you effectively aggregated local tax equity. Yes. Um, and then it, it expanded beyond that to some actually Bay area guys that were invested in Hawaii, they knew Hawaii real estate. And so it's very comfortable. So again, having that real estate background is, is led no into doubt. this again. Yeah. I mean, it was the fundamental building block for you, which is not only understanding how real estate works from a development perspective, but how the money flows. This is what I tell people all the time. If you want to, well, it's in any industry, follow the money to understand the industry. But if you want to understand the power business, you have to understand how power is created and traded right? So study how the utilities work. Gretchen Bakke's book, The Grid, is a great example of one way to do that. And you have to understand who finances the infrastructure and like what that, what those transactions look like. If you understand those two things, the rest, you can easily fill in the gaps. Exactly. And I think understanding what those investors are looking for and what, you know, what are the numbers that make them tick, right? It's may not be, you know, carbon offsets, you know, at the time it's, you know, you got to talk in yields, IRRs, you know, depreciation, all those things and, and have a good uh, understanding of those and how it impacts their, their investment. One thing that fascinates me around the fluidity, certainly today, as compared with maybe our parents' generation, around the notion of like being an entrepreneur versus being an employee. And you worked for someone and then for much of your 30s, you went out on your own. And then, of course, obviously with electric, you don't own the company. Talk to me about the point where you started to think about, well, where are my skills best utilized? How do I make the right next step in my career that led you ultimately to explore energy storage and, and arrive at electric? Can you kind of walk me from solar Hale to electric power and the decision-making process you had there? Yeah. So even at Hawaii Eco Project, that was, that was my company, mine and two other guys. I quickly realized you know, we we started a construction company and, you know, I was much more wanted to be more of an innovator and a lot more growth and experience in that way. And so that's where, you know, I started getting into technology side. But through what happened in Hawaii in the basic moratorium on solar installs in 2013, 
we saw a, a big need for energy storage. And we knew that would be the future. And this is it really started coming to light in 2012. So it's been a decade for me. It really started on, on the product side, understanding that initially we we're kind of thinking distribution of product. As I got more and more into it, I, I, I took a few steps, but really it was the my market knowledge um, from my experiences in Hawaii, obviously an early leader in solar and the problems I've seen through the utility there brought me to uh, our original consulting gig, which was with uh, Tabuchi Electric, helped them enter the market through product strategy, go to market, basically doing product management type of steps and what the market is needing. And so that's where that started. And that was more of a consulting type of gig. But right after that, I ran into Electric um, very early stage. They were kind of in the cheap seats at Intersolar um, in the back, you know, back corner and really enjoyed their vision of what was happening. And I was thinking about starting something on my own, but I was really just um, intrigued and excited by what they were, uh, where they were at. And the gaps they had in knowledge and experience is really somewhere I could come in and make a, a big impact. Let's put a pin in the electric story for a minute. And I want to ask a couple of questions around your general work experience. I'm curious around the, you know, you watched a lot of innovation happen. You talked about uh, some of the ways that you were helping innovate in the marketplace. But one thing I think is still one stone left unturned. What is, would you say, your proudest work experience or moment in those early years? I kind of fell into it. So as I said, we were aggregating uh, commercial projects, churches, schools, and things like that. But it was just three of us and self-funded and commercial projects can take some time. And so we couldn't uh, float as many projects as we were getting in, all the pre-development. And so we needed cash flow. So despite you know our goals, we ended up moving into residential to generate some, some quicker deals, quicker turnarounds, generate cash flow. Through that and through our vision with the commercial side, we ended up talking with the uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands in Hawaii. I knew, again, from the real estate side, it's very hard to lend on those properties because they're leasehold. They don't own the land. They only own the building. And no traditional financing company would finance these. I also knew it tends to be a disadvantaged community, lower incomes, uh, lower credit. And so we knew this was who actually needed solar. This is who needed to benefit from it because it would have an outsized impact on their life by reducing their bill by 30%. So we took the same model and we were going to do a pilot. We're going to do 100 homes and went to one community, did a, a presentation. And within two weeks, we had 200 signups. And then we, they were getting called to go to every, um, there's 10,000 total homes in this DHHL community on every island. So we had to, we were bouncing around, going to community groups. So it just took off. Then we had to figure out how to do this. Uh, you know, we had funding for uh, 100 and we needed to expand on it. It was supposed to be a pilot to test it. That project started to get built out. Um, we were delivering these, these solar projects, installing them, and then that moratorium happened. Although never hit the 200 plus that we really wanted to get to and make the full impact, the homes that did get it did have significant savings. And, you know, that that's that made me feel I mean, that's still my proudest moment in my career. But also it set my my view going forward is like we need to focus on LMI. This is how solar can impact the entire world and not just, you know, the higher end. And you were able to bring in your um, your private mortgage and lending days because you effectively created a product that was no credit check. It was the first time, right? First time, no credit check. What was interesting about that particular community is it's a lottery to get a lot. And so the way I manage that risk is with the investor, talk to them about these homes don't turn over. They stay multi-generational. This is, you know, can be third, fourth generation. So you don't have that turnover risk um, that traditional uh, solar PPAs would do. So that's how we got around the, the no credit check. It's fantastic. You just go in and anyone that had a roof that was structurally sound, we could provide solar to. Yeah. And it's also pretty well known that the utility, someone's electricity is the, is the last thing people will stop paying. 
if you if you can build it in, um, and I don't know to what extent we're actually accomplishing this now uh, in specific utilities because you don't have control over the utilities access to the to the facility, nor are you in most cases being built on the utility bill unless it's community solar. There is a psychological benefit to the fact that people want to honor their electricity bill and keep the lights on. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and anytime there was uh, delinquents or defaults and we had to turn it off, the month after they got their utility bill, they realized, oh, this is extremely uh, much more expensive to pay the utility than to pay the solar bill. And so they would you know, catch back up and it, it wasn't a problem. And for those who are unfamiliar, LMI stands for low to moderate income. We've brought it up in a number of interviews here, but I always try to to spell it out in case somebody is listening for the first time and doesn't know uh, doesn't know the acronym. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Eric, one of the things that fascinates me about just learning through someone else's journey about the the decision-making criteria that can guide one on their careers, I get to meet with folks like you who make principled decisions and I want to understand them better, right? I think every entrepreneur has had the moment where they have to ask themselves, is this the right path for me? And I see that in the career of a young Eric Saunders because you had what appears on the outside to be, as so many opportunities do, a successful entrepreneurial journey, right? Kind of success upon success. You multiple companies, Hawaii Eco Project, uh, Solar Hale, High Power, and working as a consultant with respected companies as well. Can you bring me to the moment where you are having that self-reflection moment and you decide, you know what? I think I would rather go do this for somebody else than manage my own uh, my own business. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was a transition period. I just ended the consulting uh, gig with high, uh, with um, Tabuchi, and I was trying to figure out what, what was next. Where do I want to go? Do I want to start something? In all honesty, at that point, I, I was very burnt out from the other side, the the side of the entrepreneurial business that people don't see. You know, when you're done with this, Nico, you're probably you're going to have to deal with payroll and uh, all these other things that really don't impact the business and the growth of the the media company that you're you're building. And so I thought I could be more impactful if I was laser focused on building the business, building the uh, go-to-market strategy uh, and utilizing my experience to what Electric Power was building. And so that was uh, one of the key emotions I had. Uh, not going to lie, I also had a kid uh, right before that. So that um, played a role in it. And I didn't have a great idea, a great business that I needed, I wanted to pursue. Um, so it was kind of this, you know, this convergence of, of things. Um, the entrepreneurial bug isn't gone, but being in an early stage company allowed me to still itch that, or, you know, scratch that itch a little bit, uh, but not have to worry about payroll, QuickBooks, insurance, things like I that. I totally get it. Believe me. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, it's a different, as you said, it's a different animal. I almost asked that question in a sense to allow vicariously someone else who might be grappling with that decision to feel a sense of v- validation, justification, comfort. 
because it's actually also there's a bit of a of a glorification of entrepreneurship right now, not just on this podcast, but also in general in in sort of the zeitgeist since the 2010 America Reinvestment Act that particularly stimulated entrepreneurship, created lots of different opportunities, and a lot of folks lost their jobs and decided they just wanted to work for themselves, right? Coincidentally, around the time that you started your company, it was not a great time to go get a job anyway. So I think a lot of folks are going to experience that again as we head into a recession. They're going to ask themselves what they should be doing. And um, you know, I want to encourage folks through this story as well that all startups need entrepreneurial people because you have to wear many hats. You need to be a generalist. And the problem exists when entrepreneur-minded and sort of generalist folks can't scale with a business, right? So you get past like say a 30 to 50 person team, maybe a series A or B, and it's this different skill set that's frankly more regimented and processed and I'll say disciplined um, in scope that probably wouldn't fit me very well, might not fit you very well, um, but if it's somebody. And that's what that's where companies have a hard time is actually allowing folks to to become sort of segmented or stay in their stay in their role when the organization grows because they're really good at it and they want to give you more responsibility because they think that's what growing a business is is about. Um, I see that all the time. I've seen that in in the growth right as employee. You know, one of the two three for one of the first couple employees here. And now we're 30 plus and, you know, continue to grow and you see the evolution of the company and, you know, where everyone falls within that. And, you know, there's, there's definitely different people for different stages of a company. And I I think they all play a very important role. So, you know, for those that may not fit in, feel like they don't fit in a big corporate, you know, it's, it's okay. Like there are opportunities and if you don't fit you know, in an entrepreneurial side, there is a lot of need for you on the corporate side. And, you know, in that structure, in the, in not everyone needs to be, that's what I learned as a founder. Not everyone's going to be like you that you hire. And it's, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that they, they don't want to work 20 hours a week or a day and, you know, live and breathe this. They need, you know, you need people that just come in and crank things out because that's stuff you don't want to do as an entrepreneur. So there's, there's roles for everybody um, in, in this. I'd like to hear about your journey uh, towards finding the right company. You mentioned that you'd been exploring battery storage because Hawaii was the testing ground for the world on how battery storage would be integrated with, uh, with massive solar adoption. What did you see in the marketplace that was needed or gaps that needed to be filled where companies like Electric and, and including, obviously, Electric were thinking differently? Yeah, so I think... And a lot's changed in the last six years that I've been here. But at the time, it was a very hardware-focused business. Uh, It was all the hardware companies coming out, almost treating it like solar panels were. It's like, oh, it's all about the hardware. But batteries were different because you can do a lot more with a battery um, than just, you know, produce, like, shake some electrons out, send it down some wires, and, and produce power. Batteries are smart. They are, they can be smart. They should be smart. And so it's more about what can you do with a battery than the battery technology itself. Lithium ion has been around forever. Um, there's no, there's not a lot of confusion or or risk there, but how do you manage that? How do you provide more value to the homeowner, to the grid, uh, to the installers? I mean, there's a whole different, there's so many different layers and that's where electric was, was really focused on, the software side, they're integrating, grabbing inverters, grabbing batteries, putting them together and making them smart. And from what I saw on the panel side, that was going to be a differentiator because panels just got commoditized and you couldn't tell the difference between X, Y, or Z solar panel. And there's just this race to the bottom of price and low margins and everybody leaves the industry because there there's no margins to be made. Um, and I, I think batteries are going to be on the same path. Yeah, it's interesting, right? You've got really just a handful. When you think about LFP, which is now the prevailing uh, chemistry, there's only a handful of companies that really make the battery or the technology. Um, you know, numerous companies now are, um, are licensing Murata and other cell makers technologies. Mm-hmm. And so the, the differentiator has to be what you layer on top of it, which is, is what we refer to often as the BEZ, right? The, the, the storage system software that allows you to control. I guess the thing that I've always wondered is, Everyone's sort of operating in silos and it feels like every battery manufacturer or presumed battery manufacturer is differentiating themselves on their software. But how many different ways 
can the software be developed that makes it truly different? You know, like as a, as a residential homeowner and a consumer and a sort of observer of this niche of like how to make batteries do what you want them to do, what's your, what's been your experience from the inside around how companies can really differentiate themselves in a unique, maybe even IP protected way? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting viewpoint because from what we see, most of the big name competitors are manufacturers. They're mm-hmm. hardware manufacturers, and they're still a little light on their software and their capabilities. Um, without you know naming names, some are even out their software. It's a little, it's more of a closed system, right? And closed meaning it only operates with their system. Correct. And it would, you know, may not integrate with other uh, grid service programs. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) yeah, so it doesn't give customers a lot of choice. Um, And we're, you know, we really want to empower the customer to make the best decision for them. As grid service programs come out, DR uh, DR programs come out, there's going to be all these different, there's going to be a marketplace of options, right? And so how do you select, how does that homeowner have the ability, how do you enable them to be able to select the best program for them? And maybe time of use is the best for them. Just depends on their, their market. And so thinking of the customer first is really, uh, you know, just from the software side. And there's other ways we, we differentiate. You guys have thought about the customer first in a couple of different ways. I've heard you refer to the work that is happening at Electric as unique, like nobody else is really doing it. Talk to me a bit about how you're thinking about providing financing for different sectors uh, as a battery uh, manufacturer and a software player and how you are thinking about, again, the work that you did with LMI communities back in Hawaii, how that incorporates as well. Yeah. So that's where it gets really nice for us or for me as an individual is, you know, I did that LMI work um, earlier and now at Electric, it's start, starting to converge into uh, a similar thing. So again, we started as a battery manufacturer. You have to have a piece of hardware to get into the home. Um We've layered software on top of that to help the installer, help the customer, um, help our uh, back office or support team. And now the next evolution of that is how do we deploy these in a more efficient way that, that can add more value to the grid? And so that's where our current evolution is, is on more of a complete solution, uh, providing programs for cities or uh, other d- types of developers. Well, we'll come in with a full package for them. Um, there's a lot of people that have access to customers and need a way to deploy it. And they really want to go to a single point of deployment. And with us owning and managing the uh, supply chain of the battery, that kind of opens up our ability to just deploy um, at scale. And so our we're really focused on LMI communities uh, and building out microgrids for those LMI communities. And, and by a microgrid for us, everyone has their own definition, but it's really solar storage and the ability to control those as a fleet. Right? And so we've we've been able to bring in some investors that are uh, interested in the LMI communities. Uh, the obviously the focus now of the new energy bill is to help expand solar to these um, LMI communities. And so that really has started taking off in the last 12 months. And we have a a lot more uh, ahead of us that we're really excited about. I'd love to hear how you view the competitive landscape and also the, the existing or persisting hurdles to really proliferated battery and energy storage technology acceptance for Resi and CNI, obviously you guys aren't focused right now on utility scale, but let's talk about Resi and CNI. Where do you see the competitive landscape, and what are the hurdles right now that developers are overcoming and that you're helping with? Yeah, as I noticed back in my Hawaii days uh, with the DHHL, their communities are being completely ignored uh, when it comes to solar. If they're they are being touched, they're having problems. There's there's door knocking. There's you know shady business practices. Uh, there, there's a lot of hesitation from the LMI community to invest in solar. Can they afford it? They've been told it's too expensive. That's one of the big concerns um, in that community. And then um, on top of that, obviously, with fires and outages and increased uh, resiliency issues uh, of the grip, you know, the deferred maintenance, uh, you just we're having more and more outages. And, and those, you know, the, the LMI community is having a, a harder time uh, protecting themselves from this. And, and again, the the benefits are being outsized towards different communities. 
So we're really focused on going after that community of here's here's an option. Here's solar and storage. It's affordable. We've been able to, with our financing partner, uh, with available incentives, even before the um, investment, uh, the energy tax bill, we were able to meet uh, the PPA rate of anyone on even the CARES program. And the CARES program is a, a reduced electric uh, rate here in, in PG&E territory. And that's solar and storage. So the customers are getting, you know, they're reducing their bill for one from the solar. And then they're also getting the resiliency from the battery for the same cost, if not less than what they're paying on a reduced electric bill from the utility. So that's how far it's come is that, you know, solar may have been unattainable five years ago for, you know, these communities. Now they're getting solar and storage uh, at the same cost of uh, the utility rate. And so we, you know, we've had some early successes with the city in Central Valley called Parlier. Uh, we've stood up a program there. And from there, it's expanded into two other very similar programs, but uh, with one in Washington, D.C. and one in Puerto Rico. And those those aren't necessarily with the cities, but they're with uh, developer groups over there that are providing a program. And the one in Washington, D.C. is amazing. I, I actually didn't understand believe it when i heard it originally internally is it's a no cost not this no cost upfront thing no cost um so customers are getting solar and storage for for nothing no monthly payment any of that and so it's it's an opportunity zone um there's all these different stacks of, of of value and it's meeting our mission to provide basically a ubiquitous energy to to everybody yeah but to be clear it's not philanthropic it's just in the same way that, you know, back in the day, Sun Edison was able to offer essentially a no cost CNI install. The customer simply in some ways didn't even benefit from the asset. It was just hosted on their, on their site. I guess I want to better understand the opportunity and not to in any way throw shade on the program. I want to make sure that folks hearing don't do that in their minds, right? In this way, in the DC program specifically, it sounds like you've worked out a way to bring in tax equity investors through opportunity zones who can benefit from the value of the investment, therefore basically uh, subsidizing the cost of the install. And then my guess is that there's some ancillary program through distributed energy resource programs at a regional level that you all, through your own investors, basically own the electricity and you can do with it as you will. And I'm guessing in some ways you have a contract with the homeowner that you'll pay down their electricity bill or pay it off. Can you explain a little more of how that works? To be clear, we don't own the electricity, we own the battery. Mm -hmm. So we do retain access to the battery. And as grid service programs come in, they would see the benefit of that, the, the investor would, right? And so that's their ancillary benefit of either the, like you said, the tax equity, the SREX, whatever it may be. And then they, they withhold the uh, ability to control the battery as needed. And that's no different than these programs in Hawaii. HECO has a battery bonus program, right? So they give you chunk of change up front, but then they retain rights for 10 years to the battery. Um, and, and most of these utility programs are looking like that now. Which means that they can at any time, in the same way that like the old sort of not smart, like direct mechanical uh, switch demand response program could like turn off your AC at will by the utility. In this case, the utility in Hawaii and um, perhaps the utility or through uh, you all as the service provider in DC can essentially turn off the access to, it sounds like turn off momentary access to the electricity generated by the, by the solar and divert it all into the battery and then deploy that energy from the battery at will as well. Because in fact, the homeowner doesn't own the energy generation system. One thing I'd correct is the solar will always go into the home first okay. and the, the battery is just going to be a load. We can't divert it that way because it's all landing in the main panel. So it's just electricity on the battery side, though. Usually these agreements reserve some percentage that will always be available for backup power. Right. And with a soft guarantee that we won't pull power when there is an outage. Right. Or like if there's a California, if there's a PSPS event plan, you're not going to pull the power then. So it's usually within the agreement to hold something back. And now you have to understand in most markets outside of California, backups the value of batteries today, right? There, there are no 40 cent spread on TOU rates like there Time are use, in yeah. California, right? So yeah. So the things, to be clear for listeners, the things that you'll see companies like STEM doing in the commercial industrial markets, basically 
arbitrage against time of use rates are not currently available in most or all of the jurisdictions in the United States presently. Correct. And even if they are, they're a couple cents, uh, you know, difference. And so it's not a value proposition, right? The, the value proposition is still backup power. And it, it, I think it will be for a while, but it's actually a very big value proposition. People are losing power consistently. The point is that it sounds like there is now a lot of emerging competition in the residential space for similar grid services. And to your original point, hardware doesn't do that. That's a software play, right? And correct. some of the early participants in those markets, Tesla among them, Sunrun with their Brightbox technology, are inside of a particular sort of asset owner's sort of wheelhouse, right? That's inside of their ivory tower, if you will, not accessible by other folks in the marketplace that want to play with that technology or have access to that software. I can see where it be, it's a compelling uh, opportunity in the marketplace for folks like Electric to stand up and say, wait a minute, we can democratize access to this technology. Yeah, I think de- democratizing energy is is critical to, to what we're trying to achieve here. And even going back to the snow credit check thing from DHHL, I mean, that's what we're doing today at Electric with these mini resi. We're able to, we found a di- different ways to secure payment risk for these investors. And this has opened up the market uh, to every municipality in the country. And they can provide solar and storage to everyone in their community through programs uh, like our Muni Resi program. So it's, uh, again, one of our core values is making energy ubiquitous. And so it's, um, that's our, that's one of our goals. And here we are uh, making that happen. Eric, it's clear to me that your father was a strong mentor in your life. And I imagine there were others who made an indelible impact on who you are as a human and the way you think about adding value in the world. How do you view mentorships? And I'd love to hear some of the key lessons or takeaways from the most important folks in your life and your career. Yeah, I, I've been on both sides of it. Um, I I love to share. I don't hold back a lot. I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, off the cuff. I'll, you know, I will share, overshare sometimes. And I, I think everyone has their own path. Um, and so I, I've had good mentors uh, throughout my career on the real estate side, um, some I'm still really close with. And those were really good leaders on how to run a business and, you know, how, how to treat your employees and, and things like that. And then, you know, as, as well as some now in the energy side, actually, mentors and peers that just kind of grew up in this industry together that we um, can commiserate and understand it's not always been like this. The last you know year or so in this industry is not what the last decade has been like. It's been a, a lot of a big grind, a lot of um, setbacks. But um, you know there's more setbacks to come. But we have it's a cl- little clearer path for the next ten twenty years. Well, while you are not technically owning and running your own business, you're still very much an entrepreneur, and entrepreneur minded. I wonder if you have any advice for fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life. It's a grind. Um, I think uh, I, I was thinking about this before a call is, you know, the like, three values that are important, whether it's in particularly in entrepreneurship, but uh, in just this industry in general would be, you know, passion, uh, perseverance and grit. Like just you just have to keep getting after it. Um, as I said, over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of two steps forward, mm. three steps back. Uh, you know, big leaps, and then you have a little setback. And it, that's just going to continue. And the but when you look, when I look back on 2010, and then even 2002, before that, you know, my college class, you know, when I started uh, Hawaii Eco Project, and now, just the trajectory of this industry is, you know, almost a hockey stick. So it's been, although day to day, it does not feel like a hockey <laughs> stick, uh, but it's been, um, it's been fun. It's, uh, and I'm really excited about what the future brings, right? I mean, the goals of this energy transition and democratizing energy will have such a huge impact on, you know, our society in general. Yeah. And so that's kind of always that, uh, that carrot out there for, for me that keeps me going. Yeah. I'm sure you guys have been excited to contemplate the relative impact, not just to our industry, but to your business with the Inflation Reduction Act. Is there anything specific that you've been tracking and that particularly excites you with regard to energy storage and the coming uh, climate bill provisions? Yeah, I think in, in particular for us, we appreciate the 
uh, focus on the LMI communities uh, and the mm-hmm. potential tailwinds that will will provide, uh, which will just allow us to d- deploy more and mm-hmm. um, not focus on certain ec- you know economics, right? So California makes sense because TOU rates, but right. through this this bill, we'll be able to open up well beyond that and, mm-hmm. and service more and more communities. Eric, I believe that readers are leaders, and as such, I like to probe the minds of the leaders that I get a chance to meet with and better understand if there are any particular books or authors that have made an indelible impact on the way you think about the world and that you'd recommend to our Suncast tribe. Oh, um, I, I'm actually just looking at my Audible list. I, I do read a lot. I'm, ter- I do, I'm terrible with remembering a lot of the names, but uh, I just read uh, The Power of Positive Leadership, mm-hmm. uh, John Gordon, uh, just as far as, you know, I'm, I tend to be a very positive person, very happy. And uh, just, you know, connecting that to leadership and sharing that with, you know, internally is, uh, you know, so that's more recency bias. The other one uh, recent is Relentless, Ooh, yeah. uh, the Tim Grover one yeah. about training. Uh, so those are kind of the two in the last month or so. Um, but yeah, I, uh, w- with travel being down, I'm not listening to as many audibles as I used to, but uh, I do try to pick them up on walks and uh, when I do travel. Yeah. How else do you sharpen the saw? Where do you go for personal development? I love to stay on top of the the industry in general. Yeah. So Google alerts, I'm re- you know, my morning is I wake up and just read all the mm. articles, everything that's, that's new in the industry. And it's not, I don't just focus on residential. I like to stay up on, you know, what's coming up with hydrogen yeah. and, um, you know, uh, even e-mobility and all that, right? It's just understanding. And you do that through Google Alerts or do you have uh, particular journals that you tap into? Google Alerts, Twitter, uh, you know, follow people like Nico and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of uh, resources out there. I, it, nothing in particular that I go to. I like, you know, what Canary Media is doing. I've, I've liked those guys, but... Beyond that, it's it's really it's Google Alerts, it's Twitter, it's nothing in LinkedIn. It's it's nothing like specific. I have to hit yeah. uh, every day. Gotcha. It's, it's all of it. Yeah. How do you cultivate a sense of community? How do you stay connected beyond just the headlines of what your what the company of the industry is doing? If I'm being honest, it's been hard the last couple of years um, without the you know community meetings and the groups and. I think that's actually one of my kind of goals for the rest of this year and into 2023 is uh, kind of get back out there in the community and not just be at home working and uh, grinding. Um, these Zoom calls are great, being able to you know see more people in a in a week without all the travel, but you do miss that connection beyond you know just hammering out a, a quick call and it's it's very uh, transactional right now, uh, and so I'm looking to to get back out there. It's, you know, it's just the reality of the world of, over the last couple of years. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a key focus of mine going forward. For those who do want to in some way connect and engage with you, is LinkedIn the best way to do that? Or would you direct them somewhere else? Yeah. LinkedIn's probably the best way for me. Um, I, I I'm on there daily. I like it because it's less no politics. It's really just industry information and uh, see what my friends are doing. You just have to quick scroll past the the copious po- uh, Suncast and Nico posts. <laughs> let's let me see more of your episodes. That's for sure. There you go. Well, Eric, I've really enjoyed the conversation as we bring it to a wrap. I want to ask the same question we always do: a slight twist, as I've been uh, changing it a bit here lately. Let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? And I might tweak it by saying, what do you believe is around the corner, the next huge problem that we are going to solve? I think the speed of, with this, this energy bill, I think the onshoring of technology uh, is going to be a big lift. Um, people are looking forward to it, but I think we're a number of years out and I, I don't think it's going to match the time frame of the incentives. So I do think that is, we're very, we're far behind. And so we have a lot of catching up to do. And I think that's going to create a, uh, an impact as people, I, people start investing in factories today. We're, we're a couple of years out. Right. So, um, I think that's going to be a, a hurdle, but I think it's de-risked a little bit for them to at least do that because the demand is going to be through the roof. Um, and so, so we should see that coming, but I think there's going to be this couple year gap between before all that's up and online. On a positive note, 
like I said, the demand is there and the tailwinds are so strong. There's, you know, I hope that we're going to see a lot less of those um, steps back and, you know, a lot more clear path uh, going forward and being able to help out more people and kind of fulfill on the promises that we've all uh, been pushing on the renewable energy uh, space over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, and those are all starting to come to light. And, you know, we're seeing the cost of uh, new solar and wind being less than fossil fuels. So there's just a lot of positive steps. It's bipartisan. Everyone's um, excited. So I, I, I'm really optimistic. Ten years ago, I was like, oh, here's the next 30 years of my career. Uh, I have zero doubt now in the next 20 is going to be what I thought it was and possibly more. Well, Eric, I concur with you. And I know many other solar warriors will as well, that our career path and decision is pretty well secured for the next 20 years in much the same way as those who started their career in traditional energy you know, 50 years ago had the path well laid out before them with more than enough work to do. We've got more than enough work to do, and I look forward to seeing how you and Electric Power grow with it. Eric Saunders is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Electric Power. Such a pleasure to have you on the show, Eric. Thank you, Nico. It was uh, as fun as I expected and uh, looking forward to uh, continuing our conversations uh, down the road. Wow. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior. I appreciate you sticking around all the way to the end uh, to hear Eric's journey and how he thinks about sharpening the saw. I share with him a number of similar stories, not just about how he grew his career, but the ways that he thinks about hacking the process. I also use Google Alerts. Uh, Is that something that you do as well? I'd love to hear how you hack the process of staying ahead. I'd love to know what you learned as well. And if you were as intrigued as I was about how the low to moderate income segment stands to benefit from battery deployment in the way that electric and others are providing. You know, the thing that stood out for me as well in the conversation was right at the end where Eric said, we just don't have enough ways to connect. I am working on that for you. And if you are interested in joining in on the conversation with Eric and other guests, as well as lots of my friends in the industry, I'd encourage you to join the Suncast community. You can do that by going to mysuncast.com forward slash community. I'd also like to encourage you to sign up for other ways to be notified. Notably, you can subscribe in your podcast player of choice and rate and review the show while you're at it. You can subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find at mysuncast.com. Because every week on Tuesdays, we bring you tactical, practical advice. And on Thursdays, we bring you long form, insightful executive interviews, just like the one you heard from Eric Saunders today. And if you're eager to keep learning, you, my fellow Philomath, can head right over to that link that you have just heard twice, mysuncast.com. And find the resources and highlights from this and frankly, every other discussion that we've had on Suncast. There we link to the social media links, most notably LinkedIn of how you can contact and connect with our guests. You can get their book recommendations like Tim Grover's Relentless, a book that I've read and recommend a lot. And you can find other ways to connect with our community. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make sure that this content reaches your lovely ears without costing you anything more than your attention and time. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's where you can also learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they did just now. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Yeah, Solar Warrior!